0: Anyway, welcome to the Saturday Meditation Meetup. It looks like we have uh, one new face, TMI Illumination. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, and uh, sorry I wasn't here last week. I hope you guys had a good time. Rodrigo, sorry I haven't put uh, uploaded the video from two weeks ago yet. Uh, this is just my, my own uh, laziness or something. But I'll get to it, I promise.
1: How was the the ring?
0: The ring was, um, it was uh, very, very, very well done. Uh, It was a lot of beautiful music. Um, I still cannot understand why that particular piece of, that particular work of art is what it is, because the libretto is just so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What do you, what do I know? It's it frustrates me because it's like you know basically like like one of the one of the great uh, cultural artifacts of the 20th or 19th century I guess, um, which is still celebrated now, and it is just repeating all of these incredibly stupid old tropes that that like our cultures are still bogged down with, and so it's a little it's like I was actually feeling very discouraged at the end of Go to Demarung because. I was just thinking you know if people think that this is worth watching like what hope is there for society <laughs> but i kind of got over it after a while is probably going to get annoyed at me now i already am okay <laughs> i mean the music is beautiful it's like it's an amazing work of art it's just that the libretto is so dumb <laughs> but anyway this is not uh, not the topic for today so uh so uh does anybody have any meditation questions they'd like to ask or you know practice experience they'd like to talk about
2: uh i have a question okay so uh is it is it normal um to like i've been practicing a lot like in the last like week or two weeks and then in the last few days just feeling like all of a sudden the uh like the energy is kind of a lot lower like for mindfulness like in hmm. outside of sits and stuff like that uh it depends on what you're doing so uh you should probably tell us what you're doing um so i'm doing the uh like an, an hour in the morning for like a breath sense uh sensations at the nose mm-hmm. and then i'll do like an hour in the evening i do like uh, i started doing this nada sound mm-hmm. uh, meditation and um uh i'm not sure what else and just reading so
1: so when you
0: do the breath meditation what are you doing
2: um so usually for about the first 20 or 40 minutes i try to just um after doing the transition just try to um focus on any sensations and any observations about like the breath Mm -hmm. you know is like length and um volume and stuff like that um Uh it's and and it's it's kind of hard for me like to uh to get those sensations which i noticed was a lot of people seem to have trouble with Uh um like getting sensations like clear sensations but um
0: so um do you have distraction
2: uh yeah uh i have i posted on the um uh, like the weekly update uh-huh. I read about like yeah I have like this you know it's it's gotten a lot better but one of the distractions is just you know being a teacher you know like uh just thinking about like going back to my original monastery and like teaching all the my old friends and stuff like that about what I learned and stuff like that
0: oh yeah <laughs> testify <laughs> so uh so, so uh, it sounds so. So, based on what you just said, it sounds like you've been meditating for quite some time, and you just discovered TMI fairly recently. Yeah. Um, I
2: took the- yeah.
0: So, so when you do the TMI practice, um, one of the things, as a as a longtime meditator, obviously you've developed a meditation practice before you did TMI, and so some of the techniques that that are in TMI are sort of semi not applicable because you already know how to do that. And that makes it a little bit more challenging to navigate. And it sort of sounds like um, uh, the thing that you need to work on is probably getting, um, how shall I put it, getting oriented into like actually doing the TMI method because the TMI method is really sort of meta. It's not about meditation per se. It's about like, you know, okay, I'm meditating. Well, what's happening in my meditation? What's going wrong? What do I do to to fix it? And uh, if you've been meditating for a long time without TMI, there's a tendency to uh, to do those those things sort of unconsciously. Like you're not really you're not really tuned into what you're doing, um, and that can that can be a bit of an obstacle to actually using the technique. Um, so. Uh, for example, when you have distraction, um, determining whether it's gross or subtle distraction um, is is important. And then developing a habitual response to it is important. And knowing what your current habitual response to it is important. So for example, your current habitual response might be, and I'm, I'm I should ask you to tell me, but I'm going to just speculate a little bit first, and then you can correct me. Because sometimes it helps to throw up a, a straw man. Um, so, so you might, um, you might notice that you're distracted and feel disappointed that you've become distracted. Um, you might uh, be looking for a particular thing and not finding it. You might uh, really just sort of be noticing that you're distracted and and intend not to be distracted without actually. Uh, going any further than that, so so that's kind of what I'm. When I ask, "What are you doing?" Uh, what I'm asking is about that.
2: Uh, yeah, and and recently, in reading the the book more, uh, been trying to think about like what are the intentions behind my distractions. So, like, because um, it talks, is that is that metacognitive introspective awareness or uh, not, not quite?
1: Well.
0: So there's this whole practice that you can do. It's actually a Shins and Young practice called do nothing, which I recommend to a lot of people because it is all about that, what you just said. It's all about just sitting there and watching intentions come up and seeing what happens and, and letting them go. Like, like basically, so an intention comes up, you know, maybe you start to act on the intention. As you notice the intentions come up, you just let it go you just drop the intention. You just keep doing that. And more and more intentions come up and you just keep dropping the intention. It's a great practice. Um, But, uh, and, and it is an example of metacognitive introspective awareness, right? Because when you're doing this practice, you're aware of what you, you, you over time become more and more aware of what, what intentions are coming up. Uh, so you're, you are developing your metacognitive introspective awareness there, but, um, depending on what stage you're meditating in, um, what you're trying to develop is different. So like I'm assuming at this point, you're probably not in stage two or three because you've been meditating for quite a while. And so you're probably not just like forgetting that you're meditating, right? You're not just like sitting on the, on the cushion and thinking about lunch. Um, you you might get distracted about lunch, but you're, you know that you're supposed to be on the breath and you're, you're returning to the breath. So, so you're probably not doing that. So, uh, you might be in stage four and if you're in stage four, then uh what would be characteristic of that are two things uh which are actually related to what you you brought up at the beginning so the first thing that happens in stage four is gross distraction but the other thing that happens in stage four is dullness hi (laughs) (laughs) um and so uh so dullness um and it's and and it, there tends to be a ping-ponging back and forth between these as you practice right because as you're working on stage four like you get better at, at dealing with gross distraction and uh, what tends to happen as you get better at dealing gross distri- with gross distraction is awareness tends to collapse and then you get dull and then uh, that so so there's that but but the, actually the thing that, could be happening to you is that you might not really be doing the stage four practice like you're, you're at stage four but you're not doing the stage four practice and if that were the case then one of the ways that you can do stage four is to basically just sit there and try to not be distracted and try to keep your attention on the breath and if you do that that tends to be kind of exhausting um, and so that could result in some dullness off the cushion afterwards. It can result in the end of the meditation session being a bit more dull than the beginning, things like that. So I don't know if that sounds like it might be what you're doing, but that's one possibility.
2: So you're saying that trying not to be distracting, not not to be distracted, um, it is, is that the right thing to do or the no. wrong thing to do? It for? That's not well. Okay. So, so read, yeah. so read chapter four again and try to like yeah. it. Cause I, I think when I read chapter four, um, yeah, I, I think I listened to the audio book on that chapter. I, uh, I think I might've read some stuff on it, but I could definitely yeah. go back and, 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 uh, try to try to get that better. So.
0: Yeah, it's definitely worth rereading, but I'll just point out a couple things to you, uh, for dealing with, with gross distraction. Um, So if you find yourself like getting into these distraction loops, it sounds sort of like what you were describing where you're just like imagining like, Oh, I'm going to teach this to people. Uh, I, uh, that, that's what I used to do a lot too. Um, when you get into that, that's a gross distraction. And, And the reason you got, there's two reasons you got into that one is because it's sort of topical. And so you sort of feel like it's okay to be distracted in that particular way. Um, You're like, well, this is about meditation and I'm meditating. So it's okay to have this distraction. So there's a little bit of you that's like giving yourself permission to be distracted. And so you're not really resisting that. But the other thing is that that distraction started, right? Every distraction starts. There's no distraction that doesn't start because if it didn't start, you wouldn't have it. So how does it start? It starts with a subtle distraction, which is sufficiently enticing that it turns into a gross distraction. So, um, so two things that I would suggest, I mean, definitely reread the chapter because it's, it's worth doing, but but two things that I would suggest that you think about are one, um, try to develop an intention and don't push on this. Like, don't don't be like all like, you know, hyper alert or something like that, but just develop an intention to notice subtle distractions before they turn into gross distractions. And when you find that you're in a gross distraction, realize that that what happened was you didn't notice the subtle distraction that started it, or, or you didn't take the right action when you noticed it so either of those are things to look out for and basically it's like this experimental process right you're just like trying to figure out like okay here I am in gross distraction how did I get here um, and then set an intention to like if, if you know that you that you that you were aware of the subtle distraction but you didn't stop it then that's one thing to do right that's one intention that you should hold more strongly perhaps uh, and if on the other hand when the subtle distraction came up you didn't even notice it so so noticing it is metacognitive introspective or at least introspective awareness right notice it, so 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 when you when it comes up and you didn't even notice it you didn't have enough introspective awareness and so your intention there is going to be let's see if i can have a little more introspective awareness so that i notice the subtle distraction when it comes up and then take the right action so those are two things i would suggest you work on first and just see what happens and come back and tell
2: us thanks that gives me some stuff to think about i really appreciate that
0: cool that's what we're here for
3: so who's
0: got the next topic
3: i've got a question that is somewhat related to that Mm well, first of all, I've completed one year of meditating every day with EMI, right. so that's a, an accomplishment. And uh, for the last two months, I have been around stage five, but during the last two weeks, uh, some things have happened in my life, and I, I, they are good things, but they are creating some some distractions. and. I've noticed, well, there are two things that are, that are actually happening. One is the distractions themselves, which, as you said, uh, Ted, you're getting into a loop of distractions and dullness. When you you, you can deal with one, the other one appears. And the other one is, uh, weirdly, I have been having issues with uh, posture, with holding uh, my posture for the, the whole session. And it's weird because I have been meditating for one year, every day the same way, and it has been working fine. I have meditated around uh, one hour per session, but nowadays sometimes at the 20 minutes mark or 30 minutes, I start getting some not, not necessarily pain. I, I start noticing some discomfort, and I try to to keep at it, and that. In addition to the distractions, have made my sessions somewhat scattered, and sometimes I I can even get to the, the end of the session. I stop it. I don't know, even 30 minutes earlier or 15 minutes earlier, and and I'm trying to take it on, on stride and just dealing with it. But I'm I'm not really sure if I uh, I should I don't know. If it's a moment I should try to find a, a new posture, maybe a full lotus or something like that. And uh, I guess the distractions themselves will eventually uh, be as with everything. I, I will learn to deal with them. But the posture thing seems to be something that I, uh, I need to adjust. And I, I don't really know what to do. So um, first question, has your
0: posture changed? Like, like, when you notice that you're experiencing pain,
3: are you in a different posture than your usual posture? Uh, by usual, do you, do you mean by the start of the session or usual? Well, so you used to
0: have this experience that you were getting to stage five and you were sitting through your whole hour or whatever, yeah. and, and, and presumably your posture, either your post- posture was changing over the course of the session and it wasn't a problem, or yeah. your posture was stable over the course of the session and it wasn't a problem.
3: So yeah, one might- thing... Well my my best guess to this moment is that I have been uh, exercising more for the last couple of months and I have noticed that my posture during daily daily life is better uh-huh. and I'm I I I thought that maybe my better posture in the daily life led to a worse posture on the, the cushion because I was actually relying on my bad bad posture, but I'm I'm not really sure if that's the case, but it's one, one possibility. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so I think there are two things that I would suggest, and of course I will open the floor to anybody else who has additional suggestions, but um but two things that I would suggest that you investigate are uh one, um is your posture, is the posture that you're trying to to achieve actually the right posture? So So, and the way you would investigate that is just by, you know, trying different postures that are close to the posture that you're in now, but a little bit different. Like what happens if I lean back a little bit more? Okay. You know, does my, does, does my problem with discomfort come sooner or later than it was before? You know, what happens if I lean forward a little bit more? What happens if I raise the cushion a little bit or lower the cushion a little bit? Um, because all of those tweaks can definitely have an effect on how you hold your posture. Um, And the other thing is that uh, one of the things that can happen and the fact that you said that you're experiencing more distraction now could be related to this is when you um, get into a mode of trying to control something that's happening in meditation, often tension will manifest in the body. And when it does, that turns into sitting pain. And so nothing has changed about your posture. Your posture is just fine. But some muscle in your body is suddenly like for like 15 minutes during the meditation, just like a hundred percent on. And then like at the 16th minute, it's just like, okay, I've had enough. Like I am tired of being tense and it hurts. So, so you must move. And of course moving doesn't help because at this point your, your muscle is just sad and, and what your muscle really wants you to do is stop sitting and that's why you have to get up. So that's the other thing that I would think you might want to investigate. Like just if you, uh, if you notice a little bit of discomfort, take the time to be distracted by, by scanning your body. Like just scan your body and see if you can feel tension anywhere in the body. And if you can investigate it, like why is there tension here? Is the tension stable? Is it like, is it hundred percent on all the time? Or is it just like, did I just notice a quick blip and then it went away as soon as I looked at it? Um, this isn't something I would recommend that you do for the whole rest of your meditation career. But, but when you're in this particular point uh in your practice i think scanning your body for for tension is a good idea because a lot of times what's going on is actually some kind of purification is coming up and that purification is manifesting in the body as tension and uh once you get through the purification then that that will stop like tension might come up somewhere else but it won't come up there like i used to have like consistently all the time every single time i sat a pain in my inner thigh on the right. And, uh, and I thought it was because of my sitting posture. And so I tried to adjust my sitting posture and I was never able to figure out a way to sit that didn't cause this pain. Then I started meditating in Shavasana and I had the exact same pain in the exact same spot. So it was nothing to do with my sitting posture. It was actually a purification. So, uh, yeah. Riff, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I think Riff, are you talking? Riff had a, he raised his hand a minute ago, so maybe he had a suggestion. Because of, um, we're not audible or
4: something. Uh, can you hear me now? Is that yes, better? Yes, yeah,
3: you're good.
4: Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, I think my microphone doesn't work when my headphones are plugged in, or possibly I was plugging my headphone into the microphone jack. It's always hard to hell with this thing. Let me – are there even two jacks? No, there's only one jack. I think sometimes the microphone cuts out when I plug the headphone in. It's a little bit junky. Mm-hmm. Um, I had three – but you, you can hear me now? Yep, yep. Cool. Um, I had three different suggestions. Um, um, first of all, I think both of Ted's, all of Ted's suggestions were good too, so I don't want to contradict them in any way. Um, one suggestion is it's possible that your posture isn't any worse now, but that what's happened is that you've sort of, through exercising more, become more aware of your body and you're just noticing more about your posture. Like sometimes, like over time, you'll notice that like you've been sitting one way for a long time and it's just the tiniest bit asymmetric and you never noticed it before and then you notice it and then it bothers you. So there could be some aspect of that to say like, it's not, I wouldn't be quick to say your posture has gotten worse because you were exercising more. Um, that doesn't seem like the most likely immediate explanation. It might more be that you're noticing something. Um, a second thing I would say is there is a really beautiful book called the posture of meditation. Um, it's a short little book. It's about 90 pages long. Um, it's not, that much a physical book like it has some advice about how to sit but it's more about attitudes towards sitting and it basically kind of um expands a lot of things that ted was saying and basically has you view your posture as a combination of three different attributes which are um alignment uh relaxation and resilience and it's just a lovely book so i recommend it to everyone especially if you're having any sitting issues and then the last thing i would say is that um you might view this as an opportunity to get a lot more comfortable with discomfort, even substantial discomfort. So I think you can tell the difference between something that's really uncomfortable and like pain that's actually hurting you. Like obviously if you feel like your knee is torqued and you're, and you're damaging your knee, you should move, right? Don't, don't do that. But on the other hand, you know, I think something Ted often says, and this is like, not how I phrase it, but it's great. is like, I'm going to keep sitting unless the building's on fire. And you know, if your back feels tight, the building's not on fire. Um, it's, you know, it's something that you can let be a part of your sit and, um, what you'll find is that like all things, it can be pretty intense and like all things, it will come and it will go and it will eventually go away. And so you, you might bring that attitude of, you know, feeling discomfort while I'm sitting isn't actually a problem. Um, so those are the three things that came up for me with your question.
3: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I will try it out, especially the, the. Discomfort thing. I, I think I after after I started uh, getting to stage five territory, things started improving. So I, I got used to uh, much better sessions, and now with the distractions and the dullness and the pain again, and it's kind of frustrating. But yeah, you, you're right. Uh, maybe I, I should try to to deal with it. Huh? And so-
5: wonderful.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, I also, I, I mean, deal with it might be deal with it's an interesting phrase. I guess I would say, I mean, you also, for me, there's like a, what work was almost a sense of like surrendering to it, accepting it. Like yeah. dealing with it to me has a little bit of like a fighting back connotation. And it's not like yeah. you're going to fight back again. So you're not going to willpower through it. You're going to kind right.
3: of let it come through you. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, the purification thing. I think it might be something related to that, because, as I said, something have happened in my life right now. So I have been dealing with with stuff that I, I hadn't dealt for a long time. So it might be a just, I don't know, just some related issue that is coming up as, as discomfort and pain. So I will try to pay attention to that also. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to
0: interject one thing before we go on to Michael and Carrie, who I think also have suggestions. Um, and that is that when you're, uh, doing the practice of, uh, surrendering to the pain, make sure you don't surrender to, to, uh, pain that actually is causing you physical injury. So the, the, we, we have one guy who was in Andrea's in my teacher training class, who, um, is a real like, you know, type a, you know, power through everything kind of guy. And he had a lot of knee pain when he was sitting and he would just power through it. Um, He injured himself to the point where he can't sit in half Lotus anymore. Um, And his knees are permanently damaged. So, uh, so, so yes, definitely sit through pain that is, that is not causing your body harm and learn about pain through that. But don't be a complete hard ass, like be sensible. Evaluate whether what you're with the pain you're experiencing is is actual injury occurring or whether it's just a sore muscle, because if it's actual injury occurring, then you want to adjust is <laughs> the, the point of meditating is not to be like so, you know, tough that you can endure anything, even if it's even if it kills you. <laughs> so, um, nice. So with that said, uh, I think uh, Michael had his hand up first. So, or hold over.
6: It it was a separate topic, so if anybody else has anything to say on on, related to what Rodrigo was saying, they can go ahead.
0: Carrie, were you going to talk about sitting or something else?
5: It was in response to um, Rodrigo. Um, Because what he described resonated a bit with me. It might not be the same thing, but, you know, but if it is um, the kind of the distractions along with the um, pain. I experienced um, discomfort, I should say. Meaning discomfort not from injury related, but just kind of what I'd always heard other people talk about, but almost have never experienced. And I kind of experienced that a, a couple months ago for the first time when I was kind of distracted and resistant to sitting. And it also happened when some things in my life were going really, really well. Um, And so it was kind of strange. Um, And I think part of the resistance to sitting was because things were going well in life. But one thing I really noticed is that um, resistance to one thing kind of tends to trigger resistance in other things, like it can transfer, like there's a resistance tendency that starts to pop up in lots of different new ways. Um, And that as I started to explore resistance and um, aversion and craving, um, that that kind of There were some surprises there, and just kind of accepting how things were, as long as, yeah, I wasn't accepting how things were, and it just kind of was permeating everything. Um, And it was, when everything was kind of, you know, challenging, I got to accepting it, but when things started getting good again, (laughs) I, I started clinging to it, I guess, maybe, or something. That's just some thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense to me. I can see how how that applies to my situation. How I might I might be transferring resistance in some area to resistance to during the session. And yeah, I will will think about it. Thank you. It is funny how aversion is so much easier to
0: detect and do something about them than um, clinging, the desire essentially. <laughs> Because it's like, well, this is pleasant. I like this. Why is this bad? <laughs> but then, then you get the knee pain, and you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe it is bad. Anyway, uh, so Michael.
6: Hey. Um, yeah, something kind of weird I wanted to talk about, and I'm not sure if anybody has experience with this or heard, heard of this before related to my uh, meditation practice, actually on and off the cushion. Um, I'm having odd kind of visual things going on. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure if I should go to the eye doctor yet, <laughs> or I should, or if this is something that maybe is, can be somewhat common. Um, I've kind of been getting this, uh, in low dark and low light situations. I've kind of like had what I feel like more like a enhanced visual acuity to the point where I can really see a lot of like uh after image, I guess you would you would call it. Um and it's much more noticeable in lower light and dark situations than it is, but I can I can notice it during like right now in a somewhat sunlit room if I'm if I pay attention. Um, and it started a few weeks ago, and it also on the cushion, it kind of manifests as a um, kind of like I'm seeing with the swirly, cloudy behind the eyelids uh, type experience, and it can it can almost get distracting, um, which is fine because it's similar to what I've read in the book, um, and I can kind of expect that. But off the cushion, there there's kind of like a Almost like a like in a dark room, there is lighted uh, after image. I use kind of like a negative after image that I can kind of tell more easy, almost to the point where it feels like it's a lighted mask somewhat in front of my visual field, which is kind of concerning me because I haven't done too much night driving in the past couple of weeks when this started. So I don't know if that's going to be an issue. Um, and the other thing is I... Uh, notice kind of like a little similar to an after image type color of something can kind of creep into my visual field from the my right eye from the bottom left corner into the middle a little bit and then disappears for a second. And it might happen. It's easier to notice in the dark as well. So it might happen every minute or something like that. And I'll just notice it kind of like sneak inch and then disappear. And I'm not sure if I'm noticing things that like uh, people have been used to that they get habituated to in their eyes that they uh, don't really notice too much. And then because of the enhanced uh, sensitivity I've developed in meditation, uh, I'm starting to notice now as well. Um, and I did have a, I remember last year we talked about this briefly, but I had an audio nemita I noticed at some point where it was kind of, to some people, they would say, "Oh, it's tinnitus," and maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I started to notice it more, almost in any situation, except very loud ones. So I'm wondering if it's something like that, or should I be more concerned? If you've heard anything like that, um, I spent a few hours yesterday, Google researching on Reddit, on Wikipedia. Um, the closest thing that I can that I kind of notice was similar was um a meditation practice called fire kasana i think that's what it is
0: fire kasana, yeah
6: fire kasana. and if you know anything about that um i might have been accidentally doing that when i was reading in bed for a few weeks a few weeks ago because i turned my phone down very very low um to the point where it's very you know it was it was so low barely got off any brightness so i said so I can go to sleep better, so I can read without getting too much light into my eyes. So I might've been doing accidental fire casino <laughs> practice for a few hours. So yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to, to grasp what what's going on and I can explain it a bit more if, if anybody has anything.
0: So uh, I it wouldn't surprise me if other people have things to say about this. Um, I can tell you some things that I know about it. Uh, first of all, um, it's never a bad idea to get an eye exam if you haven't had one recently. Right. So, so if I you did have
6: one actually about 45 days ago, so I oh. was an ophthalmologist and so everything looked good, but this is before this maybe started three weeks ago. So, yeah, I mean I could go back uh, if it's concerning.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's always good to, to rule out like, um, real problems because that what you're describing um, could actually be a serious condition probably isn't I wouldn't freak out about it but um, but it, if it is that condition then getting it um, detected faster rather than slower is, is quite important so so I would actually suggest you go and get an eye exam just to be sure um, you know uh, assuming you know money is not going to be a problem or something like that um, so that said, uh, there are definitely uh, visual artifacts that people can experience. One of the things you can experience is if you start to. Um, this usually doesn't happen until until well after stream entry, but uh, but it can happen in principle at any time, uh, if you start to deconstruct the process. Uh, so your your mind, everything that you see is con- is a construct, right? You you never actually see a physical thing. You, all you see is what your mind constructs out of the information that it has available to it. And one of the things that can happen as your meditation practice gets more subtle is that you can start to see the raw data more. Uh, When I say raw data, sense percepts are actually still mental constructs, but uh, they're more raw than what you normally see. So, uh, and, and, you know, if you get down into the point of vibrations, like, like if you look at what's actually going down your optic nerve, it's just vibrations and people, when they're meditating can get to the point where they actually experience that as a, as a, like, that's how they're experiencing what's happening, which is pretty wacky. Cause at that point, you're not seeing anything. You're just experiencing vibrations. So, um, so one of the things that can happen when you're, uh, when this process is occurring is it, is that the deconstruction of uh, the formation of mental constructs <laughs> can be such that you start to notice uh, like when you're looking at someone's face, you'll stop seeing it as, as just a face. And you'll start to notice like visual artifacts, like, like your experience of someone's face. It seems like you're seeing this whole big thing, this whole big visual field, but actually what's going on is that you're, you're painting it and the process of painting it produces a stable mental image but the input is not at all stable and so you can see it then as kind of this wavery it can start to become very wavery and pulsy and like like parts of it will be in focus and other parts won't and stuff like that and that actually is a thing that can happen as a result of meditation practice which can be quite interesting you can actually use that as a practice there's a practice called pure consciousness experience or or unprovoked happiness that um basically just goes deeply into that part of the process um and uh you can also think of it as as like like the the tibetan uh the galoop describe described that as as uh which is where you're actually seeing dependent arising you're seeing things uh you're, you're seeing how things actually are appearing to you which is it's kind of cool but it can be kind of distracting too so uh Definitely I would I would encourage you to get your eyes checked just because it's like, you know, if if it the, the thing that it, very unlikely for someone your age, but but it's possible that it could be a a, a retinant attachment in progress. And and I say that specifically because there's a spot in your eye that you know is where the thing always always starts. Um so it's worth just saying, I am having these symptoms. Can you please look and see that these symptoms are not being caused by. Um, that. <laughs> um, I, it's unlikely for someone your age that that would be the case. But, you know, the, the, the one person that I know that this happened to is in his 70s. So very unusual that it would happen to someone your age, and I wouldn't be at all concerned about it. But it's better to check and, and know that it's not what's happening than not check. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, it definitely can happen as, as, a, as a result of your meditation practice as well. So.
6: Do you think that it's it's possible is part of the deconstructing, deconstructing your senses a bit. It's, you're kind of noticing the, I guess you'd say like errors or damage in your, in your body that you sense the world with. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, your, your, your body is imperfect, right? Your body is, is, you know, it's awesome, but it's, it's also, it's also like, you know, there's, there's nothing regular about it. It's an organic construct. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you, you, for example, I'm sure you're aware, I don't know if you've ever done the experiment where you find your blind spot, but you can't see your blind spot. And the reason you can't see your blind spot is not because it's not there in your visual field. It's totally there in your visual field. It's right there all the time. You just don't see it because it's being edited out by the, by the dependent arising, you know, forming of mental constructs process. Um, and so, yeah, you can definitely have an experience where, where that stops and you actually just see your blind spot. Um, and that can also be true of other imperfections in your retina. Um, or if you, you might have, like, again, at your age, I wouldn't expect this to happen, but, like, I have some floaters. And sometimes I see them and sometimes I don't. So
6: No, I, I have floaters. I can see them if I if I notice them enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: But my, yeah. my eyes aren't so great anyways. <laughs> I have a pretty high prescription, yeah. so... I, uh, you know, it could be some, it could be an issue or something like that. So oh, yeah. that's probably the smart thing to do is go to the doctor first.
0: Yep. Yep. Always better to, to eliminate high risk factors before, uh, you know, because, you know, there's a tendency to be like, well, you know, it's probably nothing and, you know, it probably is nothing. And so going on that is, is usually going to work out just fine, but it's the one time in a million that it, you'd really wish that you'd gone because like there's surgery to correct the the retina thing, and, and if you have it, you might as well get it corrected. So,
3: okay.
6: Thank you. John,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, did I get the sense that you wanted to say something?
3: <clears throat> no, not necessarily, but um, maybe it's like a bit similar to what I had in my heart, which is still sometimes a bit there. Like sometimes you just notice yeah, you, you just get aware of more subtle things and um, that can freak you out, but um, often it's nothing and uh, yeah, it's fine.
7: Yeah, I actually have a question about that too. I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, assuming that it's not sort of a medical problem, when you see weird things happening off the cushion that sort of maybe map on to that kind of more raw experience of, you know, unfelt unprocessed experience. Like, you know, I mean, Chul Dasa talks about, you know, he always just talked about that Leonard Cohen quote about, you know, there's a crack in everything and that kind of, those are sort of the little mini kind of incomplete insights that, that may be mature. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is, is are, are those sort of things to be paid attention to and cultivated? Are they things to just sort of not worry too much about and just sort of keep plugging away until, you know, until there's sort of more mature insight? I mean, you were saying there's sort of there practices that can kind of maybe pay attention to that
5: more.
0: Yeah, it's not a practice. Well, so you've been meditating for a long time, so you could certainly do that practice. If you if you go and Google pure consciousness experience or uh, unprovoked happiness, uh, there are some there are some practices you can do around that. Uh, they're basically, it's all about just looking at how you see things, how you're experiencing things. You can actually do it with anything, not just visual. You can do it with sense it with with the sense of smell, the sense of taste. You can even do it with mental constructs themselves. So like. If you're sitting in meditation you can do it on whatever is coming up in meditation um, So yeah it's it is a practice you can do it's it's a it's a Vipassana practice uh, it's not really a, a Buddhist Vipassana practice I, I'm not sure actually where it comes from but it is I, f- I find it to be a really neat practice to do uh, I, I sometimes do it when I'm going on a walk or when I'm driving um, there is of course the risk that you will, you know, suddenly pop into this, uh, like I actually had this happen once when I was skiing, I wasn't even doing the practice just happened spontaneously. I was skiing down a slope and suddenly I was seeing two visual images at once. And, um, and that persisted for about 45 minutes. And it was shortly after I'd finished the finders course. And so I was in kind of a fun place. And I just assumed that it was related to that, and I haven't seen it happen again. So I assume it's—I still assume it's related to that, and it's not a brain tumor or something. (laughs) But but, yeah. So so the one thing that's that was interesting about that was that even though I was seeing two two images, even though I was perceiving two images, I was still able to ski just fine.
6: Were the was the image a a two? Images in your visual field at the same time, or one type of uh, constructed or imagined image overlaid on top of your current visual field?
0: It seemed like I was seeing the two, the image from the left eye and the right eye as two individual images rather than having them be superimposed by the, you know, con- by the mental construct process. That was, it was kind of cool. It was also kind of weird. Riff, you have
4: your hand up? Yeah, I mean, I have, a, I have a question. It's not a response to this, so it's a new a new topic. So if we are sure. finished with, so if other want yeah, to talk about this topic, we should do that first. I, I think we're done. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, um, I'll change topics, I guess. Um, I'm not totally sure how to talk about this, so it's maybe a vague but big issue, and it's more an off-the-cushion issue than on the cushion. I feel like on the cushion, you know, my practice has been, um, very, s- I maybe mean, solid isn't the right word, but like, it's really been, um, I've been taking the advice to kind of just, you know, watch more closely for distractions as they arise. And that's really been, uh, successful. I would say, you know, I think the quality of attention has just been going up. Um, you know, it often feels like kind of a, somewhere between stage five and maybe early stage seven kind of experience. Um, I'll sometimes body scan. I won't feel a lot there, but that's okay. Um, You know, it's no trouble getting through the sit. Um, I guess I'm finding that off the cushion, things are getting pretty weird. Um, (laughs) I, um, I guess what I would say is, I'm noticing a lot of um, selfing, but in the same way that I've recognized distractions as immediately as they come up on the cushion, I'm sort of recognizing a lot of things immediately as they come up off the cushion and immediately discarding them is kind of, um, I mean, like to take a Robert Bia term, I guess I would say I'm starting to see a lot of emptiness and everything. and. Sometimes it feels very freeing, but sometimes it just feels like everything is really kind of blah, like not horrible. Like I'm not having like a, a lot of despair, but more like I had all these, like I, have. I was, I'm someone who, I have been someone who tends to think a lot in terms of longer term goals. And now I see a lot of those long-term goals as kind of empty constructs and for a while i was really kind of um conceptualizing my career in terms of large-scale helping people but now as i look at it more closely it's not obvious to me that i am large-scale helping people that just itself feels like an empty story that i was um making up and so then i'm like oh well should i just you know quit my job and play solitaire on my computer all day like i I wouldn't be large-scale helping people if i was doing that but I'm not sure I'm large-scale helping anyone right now, that's just a story I was telling myself. Um, So, I guess I would say I'm having a lot of um, uncertainty about everything. It is sometimes freeing, but often, the best I can say about it is, not very unpleasant. You know, it's not, it's not terrible, but I'm not like, oh, wow, this is what I signed up for to feel kind of men blah about everything. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, So um, yeah, I guess I just wanted people's thoughts on that. And, um, you know, I, um, I still have enough meditation to meditate. I don't have any problem meditating each day, although I've been hoping to do two sits a day and most days I only get around to one sit, but it's usually a really solid sit that, Happens. and mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, um, I would suggest that, uh, you may have, you may have had a little bit of a, uh, breakthrough that might not have stood out to you. Um, and that's why you're now seeing things as more empty. Um, and, uh, by the way, I'm going to mute you because your, your echo suppression isn't working, but okay, you, you did it. All right. So, um, So a couple things about that. Um, One is, uh, as you've just very beautifully described, uh, a lot of the motivations that used to work don't work anymore. Right? Like like, uh, motivations that were not really based on like actually seeing the need, but were more theoretical um, and more sort of like I should do this. You, you can see through the should now, and it's the should just isn't going to work very well. Uh, doesn't mean that what you were doing was the wrong thing to be doing, but you need to get more clarity about it. You need to really think about why you're doing it now, whereas before you could get away with not doing that thinking. So, you know, you say that you were doing this thing that you felt was large scale helping people, and now it seems like sort of empty. And there's two reasons why you might think that. One of them is uh, actually... I don't know if you've heard the teaching on the, on the, uh, the middle path and the, the two extremes um, so I'll, I'll just go over that because I think it's actually kind of kind of interesting and, and highly applicable in a variety of ways uh, which is um, when you first when, when you're not a Dharma practitioner or an awakening practitioner or a meditation practitioner or whatever you want to call yourself when you're just like an ordinary person going through the world you basically see the world as just existing right It's just there and it's real, and everything about it is real, and all of the things that I think about it have a feeling of realness to them. And um, then when you have some really clear insight into emptiness, there's a tendency to say, oh, I've seen that, that that wasn't real in the way I thought it was, and so it's not real at all. And so that's the extreme of non-existence so the 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 first extreme is the extreme of existence it's what everybody normally experiences but then when you have insight there's a tendency to fall into the extreme of non-existence and the extreme of non-existence is saying that because things don't exist in the way i thought they did they don't exist at all and then like you could be doing something like actually like feeding someone who's hungry you know, to use a very like clear example, like you're you're clearly you would describe that ordinarily as helping someone. But if you're in the extreme of non-existence, then it might seem like you're really not because it just doesn't matter.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really easy to see that. I mean, like even the example of helping someone, I mean, then you can zoom out and you can like think about animals and, you know, animals getting eaten by other animals. And if you help the first animal not get eaten by a second animal, you've, Help the yeah. first animal, but hurt the second animal. And why did you bother with that? And
5: yeah,
0: yeah. So, so the thing is the, the, so that zoomed out state, um, it's interesting you use that term. It's a, it's a very popular term in certain, certain circles. Uh, that zoomed out state is, uh, it's a kind of perspective. Um, and it can be helpful. Um, but if you think about like what your life is like when you're not in that zoomed out state and what everybody's life is like, who doesn't have access to that zoomed out state, because most people don't, right. Um, they're experiencing suffering, right. They're really experiencing it. I mean, it's not for them, it's not an illusion. Like they're really experiencing pain and it really hurts and it is really unpleasant and it is real for them. Um, and yes, you can, you can zoom out. And from that perspective, it's sort of that pain is empty. You can see that it's a construct. You can see that it's not a real thing, but it doesn't make it any less real for them. And so, um, So one of the things when you get into this sort of, sort of extreme of non-existence is to just like touch base with sort of, you know, where everybody else is. Um, And, you know, of course you can see that, that they're also a construct and that your experience of them as a construct and that your experience of their suffering is a construct, but, um, but you can also see their suffering. And so, this is what, you know, in, in, in Buddhism, they call the two truths. There's the, the ultimate truth and the, the, decept, the, 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 the dependent truth, the deceptive truth. The deceptive truth is deceptive because for most of us, it deceives us completely. And the ultimate truth is when we see through it and we can see what it, where it's coming from. But nevertheless, when somebody is experiencing suffering, they're suffering. And, uh, and, you know, if you look back on your own life, I'm sure you can find plenty of instances of suffering. Right. Like and, and they really felt like suffering to you. They weren't not suffering somehow. And it doesn't, it's not, it wasn't okay because because they're empty or something like that. Right. That's not what emptiness is. So emptiness is just the the reason that they're that they are the way they are is because of my relationship to them and not because they're that way from their own side. And so the reason that someone is suffering is because of their relationship to the suffering, not because suffering is inherently suffering, but it's still suffering for them. And I don't know if, like, I'm actually, as I say this, I'm not sure that it's actually helping. To some extent, you need to get in touch with it experientially.
4: But yeah, I mean, it's not it's not, not helping. I can, um, I mean, I can ask a different question, which is... Um, or a related question that, you know, I might have an answer to, but just thinking through it, it seems highly related. Is just like, um, why should I care if someone else is suffering? Like, mm-hmm. yes, they're experiencing suffering. And now I would ask, well, why does that matter if they're experiencing suffering? Why is right. it, why is it worth helping yeah. with their suffering at all? Yeah. And I think, you know, one answer I might have is because, you know, that's a way to, make myself feel good, like I'm doing the right thing. But then if you sort of perceive that itself as being empty, then you're a little circular on it. So, um, right.
0: Yeah. If you, if you ask Chula Dasa about this, he'll probably explain it in terms of the difference between third path and fourth path. Um, which doesn't yeah. help
4: me at zeroth path. So,
0: Well, uh, actually I, I would suggest that you're probably not at zeroth path anymore uh, based on what you're describing. But uh, we can set that aside and you can, we can talk about it again in six months and see, see, see how you feel about it. But, um, but with that said, uh, essentially, um, the reason that you're able to see someone else's suffering and see it as not me is because there's still a subtle uh, attachment to self. So you're still seeing yourself as a self. And because you're seeing yourself as a self separate from them, their suffering is okay because it's not your suffering. And that's actually, um, there's a further insight that, that, that you would have to have to release that. And once you've released that, so there are a whole bunch of things going on here. One is that um, there's a reason why you're doing that, right? It's not because you're an asshole or something. You're a great guy. Like there's nothing wrong with you. The reason you're doing that is because, um, You still have uh, some some clinging, which means that when you clearly perceive someone else's pain, it creates suffering for you. And so therefore uh, There is a preference which you have now developed to not clearly perceive it. Right. And, uh, and it's really helpful, like at a certain point in your practice, it's actually really good to not perceive it because you need to work on your own stuff, right? You've got your own stuff to work on. And that actually leads into something that I wanted to say about the the sort of grayness that you were describing earlier, because I've been through the exact same thing. And it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting because you, you think that the grayness is sort of the default state and that you need to add something onto it to get to happy. And it's actually just the opposite. The grayness is um, is an overlay on top of something, and what you really need to do is dig down through the grayness to find the light underneath it. Um, and so, I can give you some theoretical models for how to think about the grayness, which may or may not be in any way accurate. Uh, for Take me. The- yeah for me, the way it seems to be is that I have so so when you were in that like pre whatever mode of uh, you know experiencing things as as having like uh, some kind of ultimate reality, experiencing like you know your job as having some kind of ultimate reality, experiencing food as having some kind of ultimate reality, um, you had a couple things that were working to keep your body fed and alive and breathing. Um, and so desire and aversion are both things that keep your body fed and alive and breathing, right? They're not, they're they're functional, they work, they keep you alive, they keep the organism going, they allow the organism to reproduce, um, and when those drop, <laughs> um, then a lot of stuff just starts to seem pointless because you still have all the conditioning that you had before they dropped, right? You still have all of the ideas that you had before they dropped, and some of the ideas that you had before they dropped were actually countervailing ideas that were doing things like, for example, some, you know, you, you, you know, the concept of a workaholic, right? I mean, I don't know if you have ever been a workaholic or not, but, but, um, but if you have, then you probably know the experience of like recognizing that you're working too hard and you need to stop. And so now you, what will happen over time is one of two things. Either you won't do that because you're too guilty and you hate yourself and you know, whatever, Or you'll recognize that it's something you need to do. And so you'll start to develop an additional set of conditioning that allows you to back off from the workaholic state and rest. And so now imagine what happens when all of the stuff that was making you so driven drops. All of that conditioning is still there. All that conditioning that's saying back off, don't work so hard. And now it's in charge because it's still strong because you're not seeing it because it's sort of invisible. So part of what you need to do is actually actually start seeing it and noticing it. And so uh, one of the things that I did when I was going through this is just, um, I just, and this was just a conjecture, right? I just developed this conjecture that the grayness is not the default state. So whenever I ex- am experiencing grayness, um, that's actually conditioning being triggered and so I am going to start to notice the grayness, and when I notice the grayness, I am going to dig down under it and see what's going on. Like I'm going to see if I can understand what's. And of course, the reality is you don't, right? You don't. You're, you're never really going to actually know what the grayness is. But the the intention to dig into it tends to create a process in the unconscious mind, which at least temporarily pushes it away or, or, you know, clears it away. Uh, and then of course it comes back again. And then, so it's important that you learn how to notice it because then you, you do this, you know, this process. And so you're developing a metacognitive introspective awareness about grayness. And then when that becomes a habit, then the grayness tends to get pushed away automatically. So, so in other words, and when I say it gets pushed away, what I mean is that the, so the grayness is actually conditioning happening. It's, it's triggers going off, pr- producing a conditioned response. And uh, so if you can notice the trigger before it produces the conditioned response, then you don't get the grayness. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing that, that, that I, I've, i found that practice to be helpful in just reassuring myself that the grayness is not the default state. Cause it does seem to be that if you dig under it, it does, there is like happy under it or, and it's not really the same kind. It's, it's not like a clingy happy. It's, it's a different kind of happy, but there is a happy under it. All
4: right. So one suggestion is to investigate the grayness. That sounds like something I can work with Mm -hmm. in terms of my meditation practice. Do you think this is a time to kind of increase the amount of sitting time or just not worry about it very much or. Um,
0: I, so you, this is something that you, 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 I mean, you, you, you actually touched on this a little bit. Um, that you're you aspire to sit twice a day but you're only sitting once a day. Well why is that? It's Most because days. your motivation right. But it's because it's because you don't see it as necessary to sit twice a day, right? Um, there's some the so Yeah and
4: also is, I still and also I still get distracted by other things. Like, you know, sure. I sometimes go to bed thinking I'll meditate first thing in the morning when I wake up before work, but then I yeah. get up and I'm like I'm gonna check my email for a while and I kind of do yeah. that. There's not time for right. work and I do it after right. work.
0: But why did you check your email instead of
4: meditating? It's because meditating didn't seem necessary. That's fair. Compared to previous times, it doesn't feel as essential, this is, but.
0: This is not a criticism, I'm just, uh, this is you're, yeah. seriously, you're just looking at what's happening. It's, there's no need to say this is bad or this is good, this is just what's happening. And so <clears throat> what's happening is that for whatever reason, and it might literally just be triggering, conditioning being triggered, right? You have conditioning to check your email in the morning that currently is more powerful than the conditioning to sit and meditate. And so you sit, and I, I I know this because I've had this exact same experience. This is nothing, nothing you're saying is in any way unfamiliar to me. Um, The experience of getting up in the morning and doing something other than what I sort of have on my agenda is the right thing to do. Um, And the reason you do it is because whatever it is, like, you know, checking Reddit to see if somebody needs meditation advice. Well, that's like incredibly rewarding for me. I love giving meditation advice. I don't know if that's probably a total mystery that you would never guess that, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, whatever the reason is there's some reason why that seems more necessary than meditating. And it's not necessarily wrong, but the thing to do is just ask the question, is that, is it correct? Should I be meditating more and then see what happens? Just have that question as an ongoing thing. Like, like, what would happen if I meditated more? You know, there are some days when you do meditate more. What happens when you meditate more? Is it better or is it worse or is it the same? Just, just the the thing is, when you're being motivated now, it's going to have to be motivated on that kind of stuff.
4: Yeah, and, it's usually better when I meditate more. But, um... Right.
0: So, so then, if it, if it's usually better when you meditate more, then now uh, you. Probably what you need to be doing is just whenever you notice that, notice that you noticed it and reinforce it Yeah. and allow that knowledge to precipitate down through your whole mental system. And at some point, what you will likely experience is it precipitating back up in the form of you meditating twice a day more often. <laughs> All right. but, but you're not going to be able to just, you know, I should
4: meditate twice a day and have that happen. It's just not going to. Okay, thank you. I'll work with those ideas and see what I get. Thank you. Cool.
0: Yep. Now, uh, I don't I sort of think Jan's hand came up first. But does anybody else want to talk more about this topic?
3: Yeah, I want to comment on Rick's. Okay. Uh, two things. One is related to what Ed was talking about the the absolute and the relative. The, I don't remember the words he used, but um, uh, I think that when, when you see the emptiness of some motivations, uh, we actually have two, I don't know, two premises, two suppositions. One is that those things are real. And the second one is that we need to have real motivations to do things. And when all of a sudden uh, those things stop being real, we still are attached to the idea that we need real things to do things real motivation to do things so we, we started looking for them well, okay so where are the real motivations? Where can I find them because the old ones do, doesn't serve me anymore. So I think there, there is that might be a, a point I don't know maybe fourth path when the the snake bites its own tail you know that, that image, And when emptiness applies to itself, okay, but I don't need real motivation to do things, at at least not real in the old sense. They are real in some sense, but I don't need the the old motivations. I can do things even if they seem pointless. Uh, They, the point of things, the point of things are not the same as before. But for some time, we, we keep looking for them as if they were. And the second thing I wanted to comment is Rob uh, Rob Berbia, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He actually, he actually has, uh, I don't know when he started doing this, but he started uh, discussing soul making. I, I don't know if he, he, you have seen that. And uh, he is very well known for the emptiness teaching, but now he is experiencing something related to... What he he calls uh, imaginal work, and that is very much related to the idea that okay, we can take these things that are imaginary in a sense, but we can work with them as if they were real. So it's kind of la- that idea of the you see that the world is an illusion, and but at the same time there isn't another world that that that, that is real. This world as an illusion is all that is real. There is not something somewhere else that you go. So you can come back, the the idea of coming back to the market and you can deal with the illusions. You know they are illusions and you know people people suffering is an illusion, but it doesn't matter, you do it anyway because I don't know, because you can. So just a comment.
4: Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting advice that I'll think through. Um, I have been reading um, Rob's uh Seeing That freeze book, and that's certainly been pretty interesting. I've seen some of the imaginal stuff online, but haven't really looked through it. So I might check into it at some point. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Uh, so, Ken, did you want to talk on this topic, or do you have a new topic? New
1: topic. Uh Mine kind of segues, but uh, I think Jan had actually beat me to the buzzer if he had something
3: pertinent to this
1: conversation to jump in.
3: Um, I had like a bit of like uh, for the conversation, but also um, a new topic. Um, but maybe for the con- conversation, isn't it maybe smart that Riff uh, starts doing Vipassana meditation then more um, for integrating like. These kind of insights. I'm not sure if you agree on that, Ted. Uh,
0: I really don't have an opinion. <laughs> um I mean, I think uh you know, when I sort of had a similar thing happen to me, um, I started doing a lot of, of uh introspection. Um I don't know that I would describe it as Vipassana practice particularly. It was more just looking to see what's there. Um, And so, you know, so Vipassana practice is generally about having insight. And the problem, so, you know, what Riff is describing, I mean, he he just described himself as being at uh, zeroth path, which usually if somebody is having experiences that he's describing and they describe themselves as being at zeroth path, it's because they didn't have some like really powerful fruition. And so there isn't like a thing to repeat because normally what you want to do is repeat the fruition, right? That's what Chula Dasa would, would probably say about this. But if you don't have a fruition to point to and say, well, that was what happened, then you can't do that. So to some extent he kind of has to just keep doing what he was doing. And and that seems to have had some some very beneficial effect. So therefore uh continuing to do that would be fine but i mean you know i i I wouldn't say you're wrong i just you know that's i don't really know
4: yeah i was certainly expecting some big aha insight at some point i mean i've definitely had a ton of little aha moments along the way but it really feels like everything's been much more is and has been and continues to be much more gradual. It's just a gradual process of change for me so far. Yeah. And you know that said, like I've also never gotten into, you know, what are normally considered very high stages of like TMI. Like I think I've had some moments of seven, but I've never been in a jhana. I've never been in stages eight through ten. I've never had my senses disappear. You know, I've meditated every day yep. now for, um, yeah, I mean I've done more than forty-five minutes every day for coming up on a year and a half, so it's been very consistent. And, you know, the effects on like my life off, and certainly the meditation has gotten much more focused and concentrated and energetic, like that's happened. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the effects in the rest of my life have been extremely profound. Um, you know, it's just enormous change. I, I feel like I'm not the same person, but you know, I don't feel like I've kind of gone all the way through the stages and had, as you would say, like an intense fruition. That certainly has not happened for me.
0: Yeah. Well, it doesn't happen to everybody. I mean, the, the experience that I had, um, you know, some has some of the qualities of a, of a fruition. I really felt like there was a before and after, but, but even for me, it wasn't, um, it wasn't the way that, that other people have described their, their TMI fruitions. and I wasn't doing TMI practice when I had my, my, whatever it was. Um, so yeah. And what Rodrigo said is exactly right. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it does seem to be the case and we've, we've, you know, I know quite a few people for whom this has happened. And in fact, it's interesting. So, um, so one of the people in my in my meditation class um, had like a really profound like you know knock your socks off fruition um, that resulted in stream entry for him and his wife never had any experience like that at all. She's a practitioner in a different. She does goenka. She's not a TMI person. She's not. She actually this guy was doing TMI plus uh, uh, what do you call it uh, progress of insight. Um, And so her experience was totally different than his. And yet when they compare notes about what it's like afterwards, their experiences are essentially the same. So, so there is a tendency for people to, uh, sort of valorize, uh, powerful fruition experiences, but they just don't happen for everybody. Everybody's path is a little different. Some people have really intense fruition experiences. Some people don't. So, you know, uh, with that said, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's not super important, um, how it happens. And, 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 I, and, you, I,
4: don't, and I don't feel concerned about that. So that's right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and why would you, I mean, there's, uh, whatever is happening is what's happening. <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, the only reason to put a label on it actually is because it, it, it informs what practices you might do. Um, and we've just talked about some practices that you might do. So I think we're already on the right page there. So there's really no need to dig any deeper than that. Uh, So I think Ken had his hand up.
1: Yeah. um, Can can you hear me okay on the mic here? Okay. Yeah, so so I kind of had something that follows on what Griff said, but I wanted to talk about something related to that. I guess the The segue comment is that I've had sort of similar experience in my life, which I'll, which I can talk about a bit more after this. But I think there's a combination of, you talk about letting go. And I think there are some things you let go of in the Dharmic sense you know, the the craving or aversion or, you know, all that stuff you read about when you start reading these Dharma books. But I think just in life in general, when you're a kid or a teenager or whatever, you pick up a lot of beliefs and you're told a lot of things and you're given a lot of shoulds and you need to be, and this is how you're supposed to act and yada, yada. And as you get older and different things happen to you, 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 realize that some of those things are just complete bullshit and don't apply or never should have applied in the first place. And, you know, at some point, you know, a lot of people realize these things without necessarily having a, a Dharmic kind of path insight, you know, in, in modern society, people um, mockingly refer to guys who suddenly realize that they've been a plow horse, To some abusive woman for 30 years and he realizes that that's not the way his life should have been and he gets mockingly told that oh you're having a midlife crisis when in reality he's recognizing that a lot of the belief system that he's been conditioned to grow up in is complete and utter bullshit and he never should have bought into it and it's time to let it go and i think the dharmic sense sort of continues that process so it's it's entirely possible that a combination of those things modifies your desire and whether you're a workaholic and what you see as worthwhile goals and so on and you know maybe for you you skip the entire first thing and you you know you've had the the dharmic you know path 0.1 you know has been nibbling on the edges of your consciousness well, you
4: know I, I started meditating kind of as my response to my midlife crisis so it's um... Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, 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 so for me, this is this is kind of an interesting topic or conversation because it ties into something that I wanted to to talk about, kind of as a new topic, but it it follows this, which is that I've noticed that about ten years ago something changed in my life. I I was under a lot of personal stress and a lot of suffering, and you know, bad relationships, and you know, the whole nine yard sob story. And when I sort of decided I needed to let a lot of that go behind me, um, I lost huge amounts of the drive and conditioning and stuff that used to basically characterize my entire personality. I mean, I used to be like an insane workaholic. I was uh, like working in technology I was pursuing a part-time PhD program. I was working 16 hours a day. I was, you know, showing up at the lab at three in the morning, rewriting code in two hours that some guy had taken a week, you know, to write and he couldn't get it working. And then I, you know, fire off a snark email going, you know, say here, I rewrote it from scratch. It works perfectly, you know, like I was, you know, like in, in insane, brutal, intense, all that kind of stuff, and then I'd come home and I'd have you know eight million side projects, you know, and I'd be like woodworking and you know hacking on other programs, and you know I'd have all these goals and all this kind of stuff, and then a lot of that just changed, and some of it I think was related to um, you know kind of letting go a lot of the the pedestrian you know selfing type constructs of, you know, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing and this is who you're supposed to be doing it for and you're supposed to be pleasing your parents and you're supposed to be pleasing your wife and, you know, you're supposed to be doing this for your kids and blah, 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 blah. But the thing that in my case I've kind of been wondering about and is more germane to this forum is that about 10 years ago I had this experience around the same time that I noticed this drive dropping off that I was sitting on a park bench by the beach. And I don't know why, but all of a sudden I just noticed that everything was perfect the way it was. And this lasted for about 10 minutes. And I have a very strong recollection of sitting there on that bench, making eye contact with strangers walking past me and they were scowling at me, right? Because you don't make eye contact with strangers walking past, you know, sitting on a park bench. They were scowling at me. And inside, I was just noticing that's perfectly okay because this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. You know, and there wasn't even a sense of self that, you know, I'm creeped out by this, but it's okay that I'm creeped out by this because, you know, I'm in, you know I'm feeling happy or anything. It was just this sense that, you know, everything that was there was exactly... The way it was supposed to be and i just felt this you know sheer sense of bliss you know and it wasn't bliss because of causes and conditions it wasn't bliss because i had you know gotten a bonus at work or you know achieved something or whatever it was it was something really transcendent of that and at the time i really didn't know what to make of it i didn't you know uh, i can see ted kind of smiling in the background and Maybe his Dharma spidey senses are tingling at this. But at the time, I had no idea what to make of it. And, you know, I, you know, it was gone in 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. And I've just kind of always looked back on that and said, you know, wow, you know, that was a really amazing experience for me to have had in my life. And, you know, I hope someday I can, I can see that again. But as I've been meditating and sort of trying to correlate back on, on the path in my life and try to figure out, you know, what I should be doing with my life. You know, I mean, right now I'm, you know, comfortable and I'm working a, a job and all that kind of stuff. But like you're saying, Riff, you know, it's like the bigger why and what should I be doing? What are the goals? You know, who am I serving? And, you know, you know, why all of this, you know? It's like, I, I still don't have a real answer for that. But I'm wondering if that, you know, if that 10 minutes was related to you know letting go of some of this you know some of this uh you know goal setting or conditioning you know because like after that happened you know like i i went on this minimalism kick and i decluttered and i realized you know so many of the hobbies i had you know i had were you know shit i was doing because you know i thought it would make my father happy or you know this or that you know it's ridiculous you know the age of fucking 36 or whatever but uh Uh, you know, so I'm, I don't know, it it was an interesting experience and I was wondering if anybody had, I don't know, confirmation that that was some kind of dharmic thing and that it made sense that that would trigger that kind of release of goals or, I don't know, floor's open.
0: So I can put a label on that if you want. (laughs) That's what you described is basically a realization of a very, very clear, vivid realization of suchness, right? Suchness being just like things are precisely as they are and that's fine because that's like the fundamental, like, like in order to let go of clinging and aversion, um, you have to see that things are exactly as they are and, you know, clinging and aversion are all about like, like how things ought to be. And just being, having that that experience of like 20 minutes of just, just seeing things being okay as they are, that's like, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's, so, so. Uh,
1: so, 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 I mean, I and, and again, I'll kind of reply with the same thing Riff said, like, I don't think that was any kind of path event or something because over the last 10 years, I've still continued to be a real son of a bitch and that, you know, all kinds of personal, you know, ego bruising episodes and, you know, all, all that kind of nonsense too.
0: Yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess maybe it's worth talking about this a little bit more uh, in terms of the, the, you know, so when you have a path attainment, what's happened is that, I mean, and this is, this is just a model. This is not the truth, (laughs) just a model. Um, But what's happened is that uh, there's been a realignment in your unconscious mind. So, if you think about your mind as being like, you know, there's what I experience up here at the top, and then there's like all kinds of stuff going on underneath that that's actually kind of producing this experience, um, and also doing stuff that isn't part of the experience directly, but it's just like maintenance um, or, you know, exploration or whatever. Um, when you have some kind of powerful insight, especially when it happens in consciousness, um, so Chuladasa describes, and I think it's a useful, a useful way of thinking about it, consciousness is basically the, the central communication point for the unconscious mind. So, so you at the, at the layer of consciousness, that's like the communication bus, in a sense.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so uh, when you have some kind of profound realization at that layer, the whole mind sees it, all the unconscious parts of the mind see it, and readjust based on that. So what you experienced was a very clear, and and by the way, the experience you had was probably welling up out of some part of your unconscious mind. Right. But, uh, but that experience welled up out of some part of your unconscious mind and there you were experiencing suchness. And it was this amazing thing, which you remember 10 years later, very clearly because it was amazing. Um, and of course it was amazing. And so what happened is that there was a readjustment that occurred and it wasn't a complete readjustment. Like you didn't attain full enlightenment in that moment. Right. Obviously. Otherwise, you, the other things you described happening afterwards wouldn't have happened. But nevertheless, there was a realignment; things changed. Your priorities changed quite a bit, and then, um, and then after that, uh, a your life got sounds like better. Uh, and b uh, you at some point developed an interest in meditation practice because you wanted to see if you could find something related to that. I'm guessing. Um, I'm, I'm just putting words in your mouth, so maybe I'm wrong, but, but basically the, the point of this is that, that like how that realignment occurs really depends on a lot of things. Uh, one way that it can occur is very gradually. You have like these, sort of, uh, these, these little realizations, and over time they, they build up and transform, and, and the realignment occurs in the unconscious mind because of relatively small things that appeared in consciousness. Another way it can happen is something really big appears in consciousness, like what you just described. And that causes a realignment down below, um, and so you know if you look at like uh, you know Eckhart Tolle's story, I mean he had a very uh, very powerful experience when he was in a moment of despair that, that completely rewrote like how his mind was was relating to the world, um, and then he had two years on a park bench where he integrated that. So so the the um, the, the realignment in the unconscious mind doesn't necessarily produce an immediate transition to fourth path, but it gets you started. And then uh, the practice that you do after that is, and it, that's what, when we talk about integration, that's what we're talking about. It's just like, you know, okay, some stuff came up and I see it and I see it clearly. And now there's a new, there's maybe a smaller realignment in the unconscious mind that accounts for whatever it was that came up. And so over time, you'll see a gradual progression from like the first moment of realignment to something deeper and at some point you may even start to have the experience that wow that that experience of suchness that i had 10 years ago you know at the time it seemed like a profound contrast with what i was experiencing before but now when i look back at it it actually seems very similar to what i experience all the time now um you may not be at that point yet but that's a thing that can happen you know, that's like I had an experience during retreat with Chula Dasa three or four or five years ago. I can't remember exactly where I experienced a, a sort of profound tranquility, um, and then that went away after about 20 minutes. <laughs> it was not the same experience as you described, but it was it was quite cool. Um, and uh, actually, in a sense, you could say it was the same experience because things were okay, right? Like everything was okay, but it, it I was alone, so. <laughs> I didn't get the experience of the people, um, but uh, then when I look back on on that now, it doesn't seem that that different than what my mind is like all the time now. But at the time, it was like, wow, this is amazing. So that's the process. It's like this 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 process over time that you know you have these things happen in unconscious mind or in meditation, like especially when your meditation is really, you know, good. But like when you've when you when you've reached a, a period of clarity in your meditation, this realignment can also occur. Like when you have a purification medita- meditation, it's the same thing. Usually purifications are a little smaller than what, you know, you would get from a 20 minute experience of suchness, but it's still the, kind of the same thing. So I just blathered on kind of at length about that. So I don't know if that was helpful. Yeah, no, it, it
1: makes sense and what you're saying kind of lines up with what I'm thinking about now as I look back on it Mm
3: -hmm. but
1: you know for for the longest time I've been trying to figure out you know what the hell happened with that shift you know you know I, I used to be like a complete type a you know now you know it's the weekend goes by and you know if I can get out to a patio and have a couple of pints in the sunshine you know yeah that's that's been all I need for the weekend right in a couple of sets. Yeah. You know. So yep. Yeah. Well, thanks.
0: Yeah. Gary, you had your hand up. We're, we're actually over the hour and a half, but that's OK if you want to. No? OK. Does anybody want to have the last word? Well, I will take that silence as uh, uh, agreement that we're done. So it was great talking to you all, and hopefully, I'll see uh, some of you next weekend. And uh, I really will try and get the audio up this time
5: in the video. All right. See ya. Okay. Thanks, all. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Ciao.